growth group leader. Let's pray to God and ask him to help us now. Our Heavenly Father, we're grateful that you are the God who speaks to us. You are not silent about life, but you have spoken to us through your word and you speak to us by your Son. Lord, I pray that now you would indeed impart wisdom to us, that you would open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to be able to receive your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This year's been a, a big year for me. Uh, we've, had a, we've had a child. I've entered into my final semester of study. We've wrestled with where we're going. But the biggest thing for me this year has finally been able to go to a live NRL game for the first time in my whole life. Despite loving NRL, uh, I just haven't, for, for whatever reason, just haven't been able to make it. And so this year I've uh, gone along to Suncorp twice I've seen my beloved Tigers, quite surprisingly, beat the Broncos, which was good. I expected to see the Tigers get 40 points put on them, but that was a happy time. And I went to uh, the second origin, which uh, for me wasn't such a great time. It was a good experience. It was a good atmosphere there. And so I went along to that, and uh, I loved seeing the players. I loved, you know, the, the kind of the, the spectacle of the footy, you know, shooting T-shirts and things. It was fun. But the thing that was most striking to me about going along to these games, the thing that, that most stood out to me, was actually the silence of the game. And so I don't, I don't mean it was silent, it was loud, especially the origin, there was plenty of noise. But in terms of the game itself, I found that it was silent. I was just so used to having commentators telling me about what was happening in the game that, that it, was, it was weird to not have Ray Warren telling me what's going on and Sterlow and even Gus Gould. It was just, it was just me watching a game of footy. And so that was, that was really weird for me. And so I, it wasn't that I didn't understand the game. It wasn't that I couldn't keep up. I just kind of had no interpretation of, of where the game was, where, where the turning points were, where, what were the big plays. I just kind of had to figure them out myself. Uh, it, was, it was silent. I kind of missed that interpretation of the game. I'm not sure about you, but I reckon sometimes life feels like this as well. It's not that we're clueless as to what to do. But sometimes it just kind of feels silent. It's hard to tell what the big moments are in life. It, 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 there's, there's no one to commentate and tell you, you know, this, this conversation you're about to have with your, with your child, it's pivotal. Make sure you say the right thing here. We, we, don't, we don't have that. Uh, you know, it's, we never have, you know, turning down that job and taking this one, that's really important. Don't feel bad for doing that. There's no GPS in life. Telling you how to negotiate relationships. Saying, you know, you really need to confront this person now or you really need to keep your mouth shut now. You really need to pursue this relationship. You need to avoid this person. There's, there's none of those things going on. And so there's just no signpost. Often feels like you're just trying to figure it out yourself. There's a, there's a silence. And so in this part of the Bible, in Proverbs... It's offering an interpretation to life. It's a voice of interpretation in the silence of life. It's not a step-by-step -step guide to life because that wouldn't be helpful anyway. If you've ever wanted an understanding or interpretation of life, Proverb holds this out to us. If you've ever wanted that sort of direction, if you've ever wanted to know where you fit and what's truly important, Proverb gives you this gift. It's giving you an understanding to life. And so Proverbs, it starts with the author. Now it's impor important to note that the, who the author is because it gives us a clue as to what tools we're going to get 
for interpreting life. Uh, it's kind of not just for the publicity of him. So chapter 1, verse 1, this is what it says. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. You know, certain authors write certain types of book. If you're a reader, you'll know. If I, if I tell you a book was written by Stephen King, you know it's kind of horror or whatever that is. If I tell you Beatrix Potter wrote a book, you know it's a, a children's book. And so we're told here that Solomon writes this book. And so... The, the big thing of Solomon is he is Mr. Wisdom. He owns the wisdom literature uh, kind, of, kind of theme, genre. And we read in the Bible that people come from all over the place to talk to Solomon about this. But notice not just his wisdom that we're getting here. In, in, in 2 Chronicles, another part of the Bible, we read that Solomon's wisdom is actually a gift given especially to him by the Lord God Almighty. Solomon's is God-given wisdom. And so this interpretation of life, it's God's gift of wisdom passed on to us via Solomon. And so Proverbs is all about wisdom. If you're asked a question throughout the series of Proverbs, no matter what it is, the answer is always wisdom. That's just what it is. Interpreting life involves wisdom. And so what, what is wisdom? Now, that's a good question. On one hand, we're going to cover that in the next few weeks. But on the other hand, we do get a hint of that in these verses. Uh, we get a group of words here that's going to describe wisdom for us. I don't know what the collective noun for a group of words is, but I'm, I'm going to go with herd. I think a herd of word works well. And so this is a, a herd of words are going to come across. Uh, wisdom's included in the list, but, but uh, the, it's all describing wisdom at the same time. It's kind of interchangeable words for wisdom. So that, that's why it's a herd. It's individual Words, they have meanings, but they blend in together to describe this wisdom. So let me read verse 2 to 4, and we'll kind of get a sense of the, the mixture of words here. And so it says, For attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. And so without getting into the nitty-gritty of what each of the words mean here, I have about seven or so words. They describe this multifaceted nature of wisdom. Some here describe the ability to be motivated by consequences, you know, to see what's coming and act accordingly. And some of them, the ability to recognise the true nature of a situation. What's, what's really going on here? Some of it's knowledge, like facts, pure and simple facts. Some's knowledge as in experience. And some talk about being able to uphold certain ethics. In, in Proverbs, the idea of wisdom is actually ethical. And some refer to this to be able to negotiate situations well. Either way, the goal of Proverbs and the tool with which Proverbs seeks to give us in interpretation is wisdom. And wisdom, it's, uh, to give it a really basic definition, it's seeing reality accurately and living accordingly. So, so wisdom is seeing reality accurately and living accordingly. And this way it's kind of mastery over life. You know, wisdom is for all people, it tells us. You know, if you, if you don't have wisdom, you need to get it. If you do have wisdom, you need to get more. That's just the way wisdom works. We're told that before we get onto any of that stuff, though, applying it to life, you need to understand what the foundation of wisdom is. Where wisdom starts. Verse 7, it tells us to step back and have a look where our track begins. It says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. 
We see here that these words of uh, knowledge, wisdom, instruction, they're all interchangeable. They're this, this herd of words. It says you can't have any mastery over reality until you first fear the Lord. Reality might, it won't make sense without firstly being correctly oriented to the Lord God. And so fools despise wisdom, we're told, and it's echoed and expanded through, uh, throughout the Bible. It's, it's, we're told this, you know, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Without God, there is no wisdom. But notice that the fear of the Lord is the beginning, the fear of the Lord. And so what does it mean to fear God? How can we come near to him to receive wisdom but kind of be scared of him at the same time? These things don't seem to fit. These two ideas don't seem to fit together. Uh, if you've ever seen a, a scissor lift or a boom lift, we have one over at our auditorium at the moment. It's a machine for lifting people up high so they can work on high things. Uh, I've used them in the past. They, they lift you up a long way. When you first start using them, you know, they're, they're scary. They shake around. The wind blows them. They kind of freak you out. The ground's a long way down from the basket. They give you this harness to strap you in. But sometimes I think, man, if this thing is going down, I want to take my chances jumping onto something else, not just going down with it. And so they make you squirm. There's this definite fear inside you involved with using one of these things. In fact, it's a healthy fear, though. You know, you want to escape it, but if you escape that at 30 metres in the air, that's not really escaping. You know, there's, a, there's a trappedness here. You should squirm. And yet, you know what the greatest... Uh, like source of comfort is when you're up in that basket? Well, it's the nature and characteristics of that scissor lift. I would always tell myself that that base, it is so heavy. That thing down there, it's designed to handle the stress and the leverage of this. I remind myself, you know, if anything goes wrong, it's fail safe. It's not just going to plummet to the ground. It just stays where it is. I'd be reassured by the railing around the basket. I'm hemmed in. I can't just step out of it. And so the very boom lift that makes me squirm with fear, it's also the thing that I, I cling to. I look to it for my safety. And so it is with God. Fear and safety go hand in hand. The next beat of your heart is at his whim. It doesn't have to happen. And yet it's he who graciously gives you your next breath. You may seek to run from the reality such, of an, such as an awesome God like that, and yet he's inescapable. His mercy is the only thing between you and death. And so squirming in the fact that your life is entirely in his hand and yet clinging to him as the only one who gives life, that's actually the most accurate view of life. If, if there's to be any mastery over reality, then it has to start with this. It has to start with this squirming before God but clinging to him. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. And so it's a little wonder that the cross of Jesus Christ, it's referred to as the fulfilment of wisdom in Corinthians. It, it kind of brilliantly captures this idea of squirming before but clinging to, to, to God. The cross, on one hand, is a symbol of death, it's a symbol of punishment, and so it speaks of our sin, it speaks of our rebellion against this awesome God. And in one way, it's a truth I don't want to know about. I want to escape the idea that I'm a sinner, but I can't. I squirm because that charge is true. I deserve death. The cross tells me the truth of who I really am. And yet in the same way, the cross shows me that there's also a death that can cover my rebellion. 
that Jesus offers to swallow all of that up for me and so I cling to the cross of Christ like my life depends on it because it does. And so if you're going to interpret life according to wisdom, we need to see that life is fundamentally relational in that way. It begins with our standing before God. At the beginning of our journey into wisdom, it's trembling, it's the squirming, and yet it's the loving and clinging, those two things. This is where it starts. But if fearing God's the beginning, what's the next step? What does this path look like? Where's Solomon going to take us in this wisdom? And Proverbs has a lot of pictures. It communicates with pictures often. And uh, we're going to see something along the way, uh, one picture that kind of reoccurs, and that's the picture of a father (coughs) sitting down and having a series of talks with his son. And it's not casual uh, conversations while they're sitting in front of the telly. These are kind of heart-to-heart talks that a dad gives to his son. This is the dad sitting him down and telling him what life is all about. There's a picture that's going to reoccur all the way through these nine chapters. And so the next step in this journey for us is actually to sit down on those conversations as well. We are the son, kind of. And so Proverbs, it's God's fatherly wisdom to us. We'll, we'll see the phrase throughout these nine chapters, listen, my son, written over and over again. That kind of marks the beginning of these talks. That's the father calling us in. Come, come close. I want to tell you something. I want to tell you how to understand life. And so what does dad say to us in these heart-to-hearts? Well, he gives us a command, first of all, how to live. But it's not just a cold command. It's a, he respects our choice. So he's going to give us a command, but then follow it up with uh, an illustration of how it should look. He's not just going to tell us as the son what to do, but he's going to describe the arguments that exist behind a temptation, a, a situation of temptation. In this situation, he's going to pop the bonnet and show us what arguments drive that temptation. And so verse 10, this is the command. It says, My son, if sinners entice you, do not give in to them. It's simply avoid the wrong sort of people. But he goes on to show why. Let me, let me slow it down here and show you how he pops the bonnet and reveals to us what the arguments are driving this temptation. Verse 11 of 14. And so the arguments for giving in go like this. So first of all, if they say, come along with us, let's lie in wait for someone's blood, let's lay away some harmless soul. Now, I'm not sure about you, if you've been tempted to kill anyone lately, I doubt it. The argument here isn't just to do that, it's actually to join in with them. Now, we've all felt a pressure to belong, to, to be included. And this, this one's repeated in verse 14, to throw in your lot with us. We, we recognise that it's conformity that's driving this temptation. But second of all, verse 12, let's swallow them alive like the grave and whole like those who go down to the pit. Next argument is like being like the grave, which I'm not sure if that's something that you've, you've thought about yourself as, as the grave. Essentially what it's saying is you need to assert your power over these people. You need to, you need to be dominant over them. completely wipe them out. It's to rise above others at the expense of others, to be the best, and don't let anyone stand in your way. Like being the grave, it's kind of actually a virtue today. Make sure you are the best you can be. That's that's what's driving the second temptation. Verse 13, we we will get all sorts of valuable things and fill our houses with plunder. 
And so what's the argument here? What's driving this one? It speaks of what we can get. This is, this is good old materialism. Nothing is dearer to the Australian's heart than what we can get, than having stuff. Never mind the cost, never mind the debt, just get the stuff. And so you might not have been tempted to kill anyone, but I reckon we've all felt the pull of conformity and power, hunger and materialism. And so he pops the bonnet and shows us What's driving our temptations in this situation? That it's, it's conformity, it's power, it's materialism. That's what's tugging our heart. That's what's promised to us. But the dad isn't finished with the picture. He goes on to reveal another sort of the story. He's going to show us what will drive our ability to say no to these temptations. So verse 15, he gives another command. It says, My son, do not go along with them. Do not set foot on their paths. Verse 16 and following, for their feet rush into sin that are swift to shed blood. How useless to spread a net in full view of birds. These men lie in wait for their own blood. They waylay, they ambush only themselves. Such are the paths of all who go after ill-gotten gain. It takes away the life of those who get it. And so why should you avoid these men who would tempt you to do this? The dad gives just one reason. The fact is that God sees all, that God will bring justice to the situation. You know, they might promise inclusion and power and stuff, but God promises to bring about justice. Thieves and murderers and sinners will get what, they, what is coming to them. And so the, the father trumps this first argument by bringing God into the situation. And so if we're going to interpret life according to wisdom, we need to be able to look at the arguments that tempt us. If you're tempted, what's, what's the secret argument that you're kind of running in your head to justify it? Yeah, this will look differently depending on the situation. Yeah, for instance, are you, are you heavy-handed with your family? Because the argument is, well, I'm the head of the house and I should be able to treat people like this. Yeah, do, you, do you spend your money in, uh, on this and indulge in that? Because the argument is, well, I work hard and I deserve this. Now, do you look at this? Do you dream about this? Because the argument is, it doesn't really affect anyone else and, and, and I deserve it. Now, do you speak to people in a certain way? Because the argument is, well, I'm just a blunt person. It's just the way I am. I tell people how it is. And so the question is, where, where are we fooling ourselves with arguments that, that seem viable, that we kind of believe... But they're actually, they're actually paper thin, where we actually need to hold it up to God being in the situation. And there is another side to this. Sometimes we need to remind ourselves that, that you are doing this because you do fear the Lord. Where can you be reassured by the arguments that though this seems unpopular or countercultural, you're doing it in obedience to Christ? You are able to say to yourself, now it doesn't matter what, this, what people think, it doesn't matter what this looks like, it doesn't matter if I look foolish to the world, I'm doing this because I want to honour God and I value his ways. And so wisdom would say to us, arguments matter. The way to interpret life correctly, you need to seek out the arguments that drive your decisions and actions and words and desires. Arguments matter. I mentioned just before that we're going to run into some characters. We're going to meet another one now in our journey of wisdom. Uh, we're going to move on from kind of the quietness, the intimacy, the warmth of a father talking to a son. And we're actually going to meet someone who's a lot more blunt. Okay, So this is, I need you to brace yourself. Have an aspirin because this is your attention is about to be grabbed. 
verse 20 to 33, it's an address by a woman, a, a, a lady wisdom. Proverbs gets really creative and abstract here and personifies wisdom for us. And now, I'm not sure what you think. How, how would you imagine wisdom to be personified? I kind of think of it, you know, like a, a nice lady. She's approachable. She's proper. I kind of think of her like Mary Poppins, maybe. She strikes me as the lady wisdom type. That's, that's not really the case. Verse 20 to 23, it sets a scene for us. Wisdom calls aloud in the street. She raises her voice in the public square. At the head of the noisy street, she cries, she cries out. In the gateways of the city, she makes her speech. How long will you simple ones love your simple ways? How long will mockers delight in mockery and fools hate knowledge? If you'd responded at my rebuke, I would have poured out my heart to you and made my thoughts known to you. So it turns out Lady Wisdom is not such a lady. She's, she's loud, she's bold, she's yelling out in the streets. You know, she's, she's, she's pushy. The picture painted here is that Lady Wisdom is actually like an Old Testament prophet. She tells us how it really is so that we might know the truth and live in it. And she goes on to do this thing where she's going to point out a potential future for us. It's, it's what could happen. If you're familiar with Dickens's uh, A Christmas Carol, you'll know the part where Ebenezer Scrooge is visited by the ghost of Christmas yet to come. And he's shown the pitiful day of his own funeral where everyone is glad he's gone. It's a potential future. So Lady Wisdom is going to do that for us. Lady Wisdom points to the simple. She says, let me know, what, let, let me show you what will happen if you keep going down this path, if you keep ignoring wisdom. Verse 24 to uh, 26. But since you rejected me when I called and no one gave heed when I stretched out my hand, since you ignored all my advice and would not accept my rebuke, I in turn will laugh at your disaster. I will mock when calamity overtakes you. I in turn will laugh at your disaster. Man, if we had any illusions that she's a Mary Poppins type, they're gone now, aren't they? She's serious. Lady Wisdom is severe. But she's severe because there's a severity to life. She's serious. This is serious. You cannot live the way you like as a simpleton or a mocker or a fool, as she, gets, as she puts it, and you, you can't live like that and get away with it. There is something at stake here. Ultimately, wisdom is life and death, is what she'd say. And Lady Wisdom speaks to a particular issue uh, that we today might have with, with wisdom. If you're sitting here today, I, I doubt that you're sitting here thinking, you know what, wisdom, I'm just not into wisdom. I'm going to live the most godless, foolish life I can. You might be thinking that and it'd be great to talk to you afterwards, but I doubt most of us are thinking like that. I reckon we more play with the, the definition of, of wisdom. We are tempted to think of wisdom as something... It's an optional extra in life. You know, a take-it-or-leave-it thing. That wisdom is a plan for improvement. It, it garnishes my life. But Lady Wisdom here would shake us and rouse us and say, no, wisdom is a necessity. It's, it's not an accessory to, to bolt on the outside. That, that to view wisdom as something uh, that you merely add to life is actually to mock wisdom. It's to make a mockery of it. And so we need to be careful not to mock the practicality of wisdom. You know, to say, well, I've read this chapter and you know what? It's actually not that practical. You know, it's not telling me how to be a parent. 
Yeah, wisdom's not helping me to know which job I should take. It's not telling me who I should pursue a relationship with. But all those things are seeking to add wisdom on top of your life, to simply make it easier or better. Uh, rather than um, being, it won't tell you how to parent, but it will tell you how to fear the Lord. It will tell you that fearing the Lord squirming before him and and clinging to the cross i'll tell you that if that's the most important thing in life then every conversation you can hold out the gospel to your kids like that is precious or hold out to anyone is precious it tells you tells you what's important for for that matter um conversations that you have then need to be made room for you drop everything for these conversations Similarly, wisdom won't tell you what job you're to take, but it will ask you, more to the point, what sort of employee are you, no matter what sort of job you have? Are you generous, no matter what position you have, no matter how much you get paid? You know, what, sort of, what do you do with the influence that you have in your job? And in your relationships, wisdom won't point out who you should marry or what friends you should have, but it will ask you, do the people you hang around with do they, do they push you toward this single most important thing, fearing God and living according to his ways? Will these relationships bring you closer to that or will they pull you away? We're to start with wisdom. Wisdom's to be at the centre, not to be sprinkled on top. And so Lady Wisdom will warn us not to think of wisdom as a thing that you do on Sunday morning. It's not just for one part. Wisdom's not just for the keen people. It's for, for us now. She would say that squirming in your sin and clinging to the cross of Christ is for your whole week. It's for your whole life. Anything short of that, anything optional about the cross actually makes a mockery of it. It it mocks the cross. And so the chapter ends with these words. Verse 32. For the waywardness of the simple will kill them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever listens to me will live in safety and be at ease without fear of harm. And so Lady Wisdom warns, but she also promises. A mocking wisdom kills, but clinging to wisdom gives life. And so if we're to interpret life accurately, then we need this biblical wisdom. A wisdom that's necessary in every area of our lives. A wisdom that discerns the arguments, looks at what's the, what's the argument driving my temptation. And a wisdom that fears God, that, that squirms at our sin, oh, but clings to the cross of Christ for grace. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Lord, I I pray for us who suffer from a particular form of uh, mockery often, that we see wisdom as the thing that we put onto our life to benefit us. We see that in the advice uh, on wisdom, in, in finances and life and all sorts of things. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see wisdom as life and death to uh, squirm at our sin, but cling to the cross of Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen.